Well, good morning. Glad you are uh, here with us. And if you're online, we're glad you're joining us online as well and downstairs in F3. And um, if, uh, if this is your first Sunday back, I talked with some folks, uh, first Sunday back, and each week we're seeing more uh, in-person uh, folks coming. So uh, welcome, welcome back after uh, a while of, uh, of being separated like this. So good, glad you're here. Hey, we call this Palm Sunday, right? The triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Uh, Matthew, in his gospel, describes it this way. He said, the disciples went and they did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, throughout the Old Testament, Israel uh, had been told they're going to have a king that's going to come. In fact, David, God had promised David that there would be a perpetual um, a David boy, a, a lineage of David uh, on that throne of David forever, Second Samuel. Chapter 7, God said, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. The Davidic throne. In the 8th century B.C., the prophet Isaiah put it this way, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and then he said, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The post-exilic prophet Zechariah worded it like this in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And on that first Palm Sunday, here comes Jesus riding the donkey. You can imagine the excitement. You can understand why people were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I mean, this was just sheer excitement because God had promised a coming king. But as we keep reading in the gospel accounts, as we know, we find that the, the triumphal entry really wasn't so <laughs> triumphal after all, because after it was all over, I mean, nothing happened. I mean, it was just so anticlimactic. Nothing happened. In fact, in the ensuing four days, the religious leaders... Uh, put Jesus to the test, and they find ways, uh, a way that they can eliminate him. They put their plan into motion, and five days later, he's on a cross, suffering Roman crucifixion between two thieves. Uh, Jesus, in anticipation of this and understanding the, the total rejection of Israel, of, of himself as the king, had said this, in Matthew 23, just a, a few days before he was going to be crucified. 
Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus was the fulfillment of the messianic promises. He was the, the coming king. That first triumphal entry, that Palm Sunday, was rightly so full of excitement. But, but they turned their back on Jesus. He says, your house is being left to you desolate. He was leaving. He was being crucified, raised, and he will, 40 days later, ascend into heaven. You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The very same words that they were singing and shouting on that first triumphal entry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, he said, you're not going to see me again until you say that once again. Your house is being left to you desolate. Jesus, by those words, are saying that he was going to make another triumphal entry one day, a second triumphal entry. And that's what the Apostle Paul is going to teach us this morning from Romans chapter 11. We have been studying the book of Romans, and I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 11. And we're finishing that major section of Romans 9, 10, and 11 where Paul has had to deal with this really thorny, tough issue about Israel. He ended chapter 8 by saying nothing separates us from the love of God. Well, if that's so, what about Israel? Because it would cer certainly seem like God has uh, rejected Israel. Romans 9, 10, 11, Paul is emphasizing that God is not finished with the nation of Israel. God has not rejected his chosen people. He made an eternal covenant with Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob, with the Jewish people, and God's word will not fail. That's what Romans 9, 10, and 11. And in this climactic uh, final kind of section of Romans 11, uh, Paul explains this future of Israel. Let me read to you, starting in verse 25. It says, I do not want you to be um, uninformed, brethren, of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The daughter, or the deliverer, will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, verse 28, they're enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, of God's election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, you Gentiles, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, the, the Jewish people, 
So these, verse 31, the Jewish people also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Several things in this passage, in this climactic passage about the, the coming restoration of Israel that Paul highlights, and I think it's, uh, it's pretty powerful the way he does it. He first of all tells us of the, the time, the timing of Israel's future restoration. In verse 25, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, my brethren. I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery. Now, when, when Paul would use that word mystery, he's talking about something that was always in the plan and heart of God, but hadn't been revealed yet in the Old Testament. It's coming to light now in the New Testament, Paul says. It's, it's, it, it, it is hidden truth in the past, but it's now coming to light. Information relating to God's sovereign plan. And, and what is that information? What is, the, what is the mystery concerning Israel? He mentions three things. He mentions that the hardening of Israel is only partial. It's only temporary. And all Israel will be saved. Uh, this is the mystery that had not been fully divulged in the Old Testament, but it's now coming to light. Let's unpack that a little bit. The, the restoration of Israel is going to take place, even though now, he says, the, the hardening of their hearts is only partial. It's not full. It's not complete. It's partial. And Paul, in earlier in chapter 11, had said, remember the story of Elijah? When he thought he was alone, yet 7,000 had not bent the knee to Baal, uh, Paul was saying, look, there is a remnant that is uh, called out by God of Jewish people that have been incorporated into the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. They have trusted Jesus as their Messiah. He said, I'm an example of that. And so he explained that early on in chapter 11. Uh, it's not a complete hardening of Israel's heart because there have been saved people who have followed Jesus as Messiah. Very few, very few, but saved. But the next phrase is really the most important. It's a partial hardening, but it's temporary. He says, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And that little preposition, until, it's a, it's a timing indicator. This will happen until this begins to happen. This will end, and then this will begin. Until. It's a time indicator. Until what? He says Israel's hardness will last until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And then that hardening is going to be removed. The temporal limit of Israel's hardening ends when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in or is completed. So, what does that fullness of the Gentiles mean? Uh, it's very similar to a phrase that Jesus used, um, again, shortly before he was crucified. In Luke 21, 24, Jesus made this prophecy. They will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. It's very similar to the phrase that Paul used 
until the fullness of the Gentiles is brought in or is completed. Um, Jesus speaks of a, of a period of time, I think a vast period of time, known as the times of the Gentiles. Now, he gets that from the book of Daniel. Uh, we don't have time this morning to do a study of the book of Daniel, um, but Daniel had prophesied that um, uh, Israel would be overrun or conquered or in submission to Gentile-dominating world powers. In fact, Israel stopped being a nation in 586 B.C. Israel was no longer a nation in 586 B.C. Daniel was caught up in that. He was a young man who had been taken away into Babylon, and God gave him this vision, actually gave Nebuchadnezzar the vision, and Daniel interpreted it. And it was a period of time called the Times of the Gentiles, dominated, first of all, by the Babylonian Empire. And Daniel said after the Babylonian Empire, it will be the Medo-Persian Empire. And then he prophesied that after the Medo-Persian Empire came and went off the scene, it would be the Greek Empire. And then he said when the Greek Empire comes off the scene, it will be the Roman Empire. Four major empires that are going to dominate the scene as Israel then will be scattered to all the nations of the world. And Jesus picked up on that. And he's specifically talking about a coming time of judgment about 40 years after Jesus said that when the Romans marched into Jerusalem, over a million Jews slaughtered, hundreds of thousands taken into captivity or, or, or they fled to the nations of the world. In 70 A.D., that's exactly what had happened. Uh, Jerusalem is going to be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. But it's going to come to an end. This, this times of the Gentiles is going to come to an end. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot until, he said, the times of the Gentiles is completed. It's interesting, is it not, that in 1948, Israel became a nation again for the first time in 2,500 years. I don't think there's another nation on the face of the earth where that's happened. Having lost its nationhood for 2,500 years, and in 1948, Israel became a nation again. Six-day war in 1967 was the first time the Jews controlled Jerusalem again. If you ever have been on one of our, uh, our tours, our study tours of Israel, I think Don and Charlie have led uh, 10 or 12 of those things here at Fellowship Bible Church over the years. Uh, when Lisa and I went, uh, man, that's been 13 years ago, but when we went, one of the highlights of that trip was as we entered Jerusalem through the gate in which the Israeli soldiers in the Six-Day War came through, 1967. If you've been on those tours, the, the, they play the, the soundtrack. You hear the, 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 the rifles, the, the machine gun fire, because the Jordanians had controlled Jerusalem the Temple Mount, and here come the Israeli soldiers and they break through the wall and you hear the shouting and the, the, the Hebrew language and they're shouting and all of a sudden the gunfire stops and there's cheers and they're shouting and then you, in the background you hear a, uh, a rabbi blow a shofar and, and they have conquered, re-established control of Jerusalem 
first time, folks, in centuries. Of course, they gave back the Temple Mount. So to this day, the Temple Mount, the center of Jerusalem, is still controlled by the Muslims. Jesus said Jerusalem is going to be trampled underfoot until the times of the Gentiles is completed. Are we living in the day in which the times of the Gentiles is completed? Are they nearing an end? Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave this command, the Great Commission, go therefore make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And for 2,000 years, that's exactly what's been going on. Followers of Christ have gone into all the world. He said, you'll be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, but to the uttermost part of the world, go into all the nations. And for 2,000 years, people have been coming to faith in Christ of every tongue and tribe and nation. God has been forming his, his church, the, the called out ones, the ecclesia, the body of Christ. And Jews have been a part of that in, in a very small way. But one day, Paul is saying here in Romans eleven twenty five, the fullness of the Gentiles is going to come in. One day, that global work of proclaiming the good news of Jesus to all the nations will come in. Your NIV translation, if you have one, it says the, uh, the, the fullness of the Gentiles will be complete. The full number of the Gentiles will be completed. God will, will, will be finished with his program that calls people to a, a saving knowledge of him from every tongue and tribe. The fullness of the Gentiles will be completed. And then, he says, all Israel will be saved. God picks up his program again with the nation of Israel. Paul's point in all this is that, look, God's word has not failed. Israel's hardening is partial. Israel's hardening is only temporary. And it is going to come to a complete end one day. All Israel will be saved. Paul speaks of the, the timing of Israel's uh, restoration, but in that little phrase, he speaks of the certainty of Israel's restoration. All Israel will be saved. Now, we have to understand that when Paul mentioned Israel, right here in this passage, it's the 11th time he mentions the word Israel. And if you check back through in, in Romans 9, 10, 11, 11 times he mentions Israel. In the previous 10 times, when he talks about Israel, he's talking about the national, the ethnic group of Jews, Israel. In fact, again, in this passage, that's clearly what he's talking about. He says there's a partial hardening that has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. There's the Jews and the non-Jews. He's talking about ethnic Israel, ethnic Israel, his, his fellow countrymen. The promise from God's Word is certain. Ethnic Israel... All Jews will be saved at a particular time, at a particular time. Not all Jews through the centuries of time, not all Jews through the last 2,000 years, but at a particular point in human history, all Jews living will be saved. How? 
What is this all about? Look at verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. Now he quotes from Isaiah. The deliverer will come from Zion. He'll remove ungodliness from Jacob because verse 27, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. When will all Israel be saved? He says, when the deliverer comes from Zion, from heaven. Now, clearly this didn't happen when Jesus came the first time. In fact, most of Israel turned their back on Jesus. But what Paul is saying here is that the deliverer, and that is the Messiah, that's Jesus, he's going to come again, and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob, and all Israel, at that time when the deliverer comes, when Jesus comes a second time, they will all be saved. Now, an Old Testament prophet, Zechariah, uh, unpacked this for us, uh, and I want you to turn there. It's it's the second to the last book in the Old Testament. If you go to Matthew, turn back one book, you got the last book in the Old Testament, which is uh, Malachi and then Zechariah. So let me read Zechariah chapter 12. This um, prophetic scene at the end of world history. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. In other words, I kind of think what Zechariah is saying is, what I'm about to say is going to be unbelievable. But let me tell you who it's coming from. It's coming from the one who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of the man within him. In other words, sit up, take notice, because what I'm about to say is going to happen. Behold, verse 2, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah, and it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, and all who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. And in that day, verse 4, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness, and I will, but I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And then, verse 5, the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, a strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. Verse 6, in that day, see how many times that's repeated? In that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among the pieces of wood and a flaming torch among the sheaves. So they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell with their own sites in Jerusalem. Verse 7, the Lord also will save the tents of Judah first in order that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not be magnified above Judah. And verse 8, in that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And his conclusion, verse 9, and it will come about in that day that I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Now, again, I don't want to take a lot of time. Don Den Hartog preached back on, December, uh, on February 14th, Valentine's Day, and an overarching sermon, you can go back to it, that 
fills in some of these details, these prophetic details. What Zechariah is saying, though, that there is a coming day, and in that day, nations of the world are going to be arrayed and, 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 and um, besiege Jerusalem and the Jewish people. A great battle, elsewhere it's called the Battle of Armageddon, at the Valley of Megiddo, and the armies of the world will come against the Israeli people, the Jewish people. And in that day, God is going to prevail and he's going to deliver his people. And he will fight against the nations of the world in that day. A supernatural deliverance of Israel in that final climactic battle of world history. In that day, now it hasn't happened yet because Things we've just read in so many other prophetic scriptures, there's no time in world history that these things have been fulfilled. But it's coming. It's coming. But I think more importantly than God's final victory over Israel's enemies is what he's going to do to Israel, his chosen people. Verse 10 of Zechariah 12 says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and of pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on whom they will look on me on whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over the firstborn. In that day, God says, I'm going to do a supernatural work to the Jewish people. I'm going to pour out my spirit upon them and they will look upon me whom they have pierced. It's amazing prophecy. He's talking about Jesus and his second triumphal entry as he returns and the Jewish people will see him come. And in that instant of time, God's grace will be poured out on all those Jews that are living in that final period of time, that climactic battle as the nations of the world are arrayed against Jerusalem. And the deliverer will come out of Zion, out of heaven. And they will see him, the one that they had pierced. They'll see the nail scars in his hands and his side. And they will mourn a mourning of repentance. They will turn to him in faith. Jesus is talking about himself returning in that second triumphal entry. And they will see him. And they will turn to him in faith. What a scene. As the heavens are open and he fights in their behalf and they turn their hearts to him. You ask me, do you really believe that that's going to happen? Well, of course I do. I mean, all the prophecies about Jesus' first coming came fulfilled literally, perfectly. Will not the prophecies concerning his second coming also not be literally fulfilled? Of course they will. There's no period of time in Israel's past history where these events fit. It's, it awaits a time that is yet to come. And that's what Paul is talking about in Romans 11. When the times of the Gentiles are completed, 
and I almost think he's implying, when that last non-Jew puts their trust in Christ that has been decreed from the foundations of the world, when the times of the Gentiles is brought in, is completed, the heavens will open and the deliverer will come from Zion and he will forgive the ungodliness of his people and their rejection and there will be a national repentance the second triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Yeah, it's kind of hard to believe because, you know, we get so caught up in the day-to-day events and the news and all the stuff and getting broiled in that. And as God's people, we, we just need to step back and say, what in the world is happening? Well, God has a plan. It's, uh, it's being unfolded this very moment. The times of the Gentiles is coming to an end and the fullness of the Gentiles will be brought in. And then the Deliverer will come and all Israel will be saved. The Jewish people will turn to their Messiah. Remember what, G- what Paul wrote in verse 23? He said, they will be grafted in again for God is able to graft them in again. Do I believe this? You better believe I do because God is able to make it happen. If prophecies about Christ's first coming had not happened, I'd be a skeptic. But they were all fulfilled. And so will this. The timing, the certainty, the means of Israel's restoration, the coming of the deliverer. Um, One more thing, the reasons for Israel's restoration, future restoration. Why is God going to redeem a people that has rejected him for all these centuries? Four things. Look at verse 27 real quickly. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God says, I made a covenant with Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. God is true to his word. How do we know that this is going to happen? How do we know that God is going to deliver ethnic Israel? Because God promised it. Why why do we fudge on this stuff? Why do theologians wrestle with this? God said it. He says, I made a covenant with them. Second of all, it's his divine choice. Verse 28, from the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies, right? They are. Greatest uh, persecutors of the early church in Paul's day were the Jewish people. But from the standpoint of God's election, of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the covenant that he made with them. Amazing. God's chosen people, ethnic Jews, who to this day stand with their fist, as it were, in the face of of God, having rejected the Messiah who came 2,000 years ago. From the standpoint of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, they're enemies. (laughs) But from the standpoint of God's divine choice and election, God said, of all the nations of the face of the earth, I choose you to be my special people. And he called this group of slaves out of Egypt, and he constituted them as his special chosen people. It was God's choice. Thirdly, it's God's very nature to restore Israel. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God, God is not 
He doesn't lie. He made the promises. And unless we want to rewrite the Old Testament or, or take them non-literally and spiritualize texts and do exegetical hocus-pocus, if you take it at face value, if you remember our study from Isaiah a few years ago, if you were here, just take it at face value. God has a plan for the Jewish people because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. It's the very nature of God. He doesn't lie. And finally, it's, Israel is going to be restored because God is merciful. Verse 30, for just as you once Gentiles were disobedient to God but have been now shown mercy because of the Jewish disobedience, so the Jews also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also will be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. And Paul is simply saying, yes, there is this time now, the time of, of Jewish disobedience, and God sovereignly, he hardens whom he hardens, and he has compassion on whom he has compassion. Look, folks, God is in charge of this. He is not up in heaven waiting for us to respond. God is the great mover. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And he said right now in his plan, he's shut up all in disobedience, but one day he will show mercy to all. The deliverer is going to come from Zion and he will restore his people. He will forgive their sins in fulfillment of all what the Old Testament had prophesied. Why? Because God keeps his covenant. He is a God of elective choice. It's his very nature. He's a God of mercy. What we have just studied, I think, in this passage, but also just Romans 9, 10, 11, is I think some of the most powerful passages in the Scripture. And when we began this study a number of weeks ago in Romans 9, 10, 11, I had mentioned that so many people just bypass it because it's got some tough things in here to, to wrestle with. But my goodness, folks, if we can't walk away from a study like this in awe of a God, a God who's going to keep his word, a God who stands vindicated, his word is sure. That was the, one of the things Paul brought out in chapter 9. Has God's word failed? What is going on with, with the Jews, the chosen people? Well, we found the answer this morning. Thus all Israel will be saved. And God is vindicated. He's justified. His word is sure. His promises are unshakable. His character is firm. And when he says it, he will bring it to pass. There's one thing left to do. When you stand in, amazed in the presence of a God like this, what do you do? You do what Paul did. Verse 33, all oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how unfathomable are his ways. And you break out in exultant worship. And, and that's what we're going to do next week on Resurrection Weekend. We're going to gather on, on Easter Sunday, and we're going to look at this passage, but we're going to walk through a little bit of the book of Romans and stand back in amazement and worship a God like this who does such wonderful things. Are you ready for Christ's second triumphal entry? Are you ready? You know when he came the first time? Let me walk through this. 
He came the first time, he rode on a donkey. He comes the second time, he's coming on a white horse. Revelation 19. He came the first time in obscurity. Matthew records that as he came into Jerusalem, people were confused. Who is this, they said. What's going on here? Who is this? When he comes a second time, all the nations will see him come. His arrival will be before all the nations. He came the first time as that suffering servant, Isaiah 53, the one who was broken and despised and spit upon and the crown of thorns pressed into his brow and crucified like a criminal. He's coming the second time, the conquering king. Watch out, world. There's a second triumphal entry, a real one that's coming. He came the first time and Jesus wept over Jerusalem. His heart was broken. He's coming a second time and Jerusalem is going to weep over him. He came the first time and Israel rejected their Messiah. He's going to come again and he's going to open their eyes and, and they're going to receive him and be saved. Two triumphal entries, but in reality there's only one triumphal entry. Hasn't happened yet, but as sure as we're sitting here, it's coming. The king is going to come back. He's going to come back and he's going to reign supreme. And the last chapter in the book of Zechariah puts it this way. Verse 9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one. And his name will be the only one. And Jesus is going to set his foot on the Mount of Olives and he's going to return and he's going to set up a righteous and just kingdom here on earth. His kingdom. Hasn't happened yet, but it's coming and he will be king over all the earth, and he'll be the only one. And folks, there will be no Bidens or Trumps or Putins or Zs. No, there will be Jesus and only Jesus on the earth that day, and he's coming. The second triumphal entry. It's coming, and he'll reign supreme. And so what do we do in the meantime? get all caught up in the affairs of the world and bite our fingernails now to a nub and, and worry, worry, worry and get all upset because of what's going on in Washington or around the world? Are you kidding me? We have a compelling message of truth of a Savior who came the first time to pay for our sins in love and grace and extend that free offer of salvation to anyone who will put their faith and trust in Christ. Maybe you're here today, and if you haven't yet settled the issue of your eternity, let me invite you to consider that, if you have not already. The Bible says that we're all born in sin. We're separated from God. And there's no way in heaven or hell that any of us could ever make it to heaven by our own goodness. It's impossible. And that's why Jesus came. That's what we're going to be celebrating on Friday. He came and he died on the cross and he paid for our sins in total out of great infinite love. And he paid for our sins and he was raised again on the third day sealing the victory that he secured for us on that cross so that he could offer a free gift. He's not asking us to do anything for it but to receive it by faith. 
because he so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, believes in him, believes in him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to join a church. You don't even have to say a prayer. God invites us to put our faith in him and him alone. But he commands us after that to live for him. To display the, the goodness and this, the glory of this God to a world that is in darkness, living in death, to take the life that has been put into ours and transformed us and made us new creations in Christ and proclaim it to a world and continue to do that until he comes again. To live our lives with such compelling witness of holiness. Folks, we need help doing that. And that's what the church is all about. It's about gathering together. It's about coming back together again to getting connected in fellowship, in intimate fellowship with one another and studying God's Word together and, and growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord so we can present to a world the incredible, wonderful glory of a God. A God who has a plan of the ages and is going to fulfill that plan. You know, Paul began this section in 1911 with that burdened heart of unceasing sorrow, of ongoing grief for his Jewish people. But he ends it in worship and praise because the deliverer is going to come and all Israel is going to be saved because God has a program that he's fulfilling. And so what manner of men and women and boys and girls should we be? Living for him. We have a great God worthy to be praised. Let's pray. And so, Father, grant us grace to not get caught up, not, not live in isolation, or not live in defeat, and not live uh, in holy huddles <laughs> where we're, we're separate from the world and the pain and the sorrow of this world, but to be compelling witnesses as our mission statement says, Lord, to change our world for Christ as we're being changed by you. But help us, Father, with confidence to move out into a world of hopelessness and darkness, but in confidence, we children of light, knowing that you're going to win in the end. The victory is secured. Father, thank you for allowing us to have glimpses of that plan of yours of the ages from your word. Remind us often of whose we are, the coming king. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.